Welcome to Chatting with Asians. On this episode, I chat with writer Michelle Yang. Before she pursued writing, she was climbing the corporate ladder at Fortune 500 companies. She also received her MBA and studied abroad in China, but what she is truly passionate about is being a mental health advocate. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at 20 years old and had trouble finding role models, especially people of color and those who've immigrated to America. With the right treatment and hard work, she has proven to be her own role model. Nowadays, she uses her writing to share her stories so that they will reassure others who are facing similar challenges. So here's my conversation with Michelle. Thank you for having me, Angie. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's I I loved our initial kind of warm-up conversation that we had I don't know, maybe like a couple months back, and I'm just so excited to have you on as a guest. Um, you've, it sounds like you've achieved so much in life right now, where you've studied abroad in China, you've graduated summa cum laude, pursued your MBA, worked at corporations like Starbucks and Nestle, making lots of money, and you're married with kids. And so, you know, kind of on paper, it sounds like you've got the perfect life. Um, <laughs> with that was very seamless and with no issues at all. So. <laughs> Um, you know, for, for your own point of view, what are people's reactions or responses when you tell them that you've been living with bipolar disorder since you were diagnosed at 20? Yeah. I mean, like I, uh, you know, it's like, first of all, not that much money <laughs> like a, as much as you would, you would make, like if you have an MBA, you know, um, corporate, mm -hmm. you know, in a, in a big city sort of a way. So it's like, yes, we are like, we definitely do well, but it's not like that's um, Bill Gates. Right. No, that's <laughs> true. That's like also like the San Francisco lifestyle, right? Like, okay. You make like buttloads of money, but also living yeah. here is crazy expensive. Right. Right. So, um, so yes. Uh, but I know on paper, like, I know it looks great. And like, that's one of the reasons I came out because it's like, I know that how it looks, people actually have said to me that it's like, um, you know, and I, I hope it doesn't sound like I have a really big head or anything like that, that like no, my life no. looks really enviable from the outside. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why it was like really important for me to come out and, you know, and let you let us let people know that it's like, no, I have my struggles, too. And also that I'm in a unique position to be able to advocate for mental health awareness and to de destigmatize it to like show that like, look, I live this great life. I am supremely happy. Yet I still struggle with this mental health, men you know, a severe mental illness, you know, and um, right. up until recently, I told very few people it was um not until like late January, early February that like I started writing publicly about it. And, um, and so, you know, and before I was out, I was, you know, working up the nerve to, to share with people just one-on-one -on -one. and um, the typical reactions usually are like, really? I can't tell. Or like, you know, you must have a really mild case, you know, <laughs> which is like, I, which I understand is a reaction of surprise and you have to give mm -hmm. people a minute to absorb the information, but it always made that kind of reactions made me feel small, you know, and made me feel like, Oh, you're not, you know, like, not like I was really being heard or just, it kind of minimizes the condition that I actually have and the gravity of what I just shared. Right. And also mm -hmm. it just continues to show this, that, that it actually validates my fear that they do hold a stigma against the mental illness. If they're like, oh, well, you're 
you're a normal person that I know. And so that means like you must have a mild case, you know? And so, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes even worse, I can see judgment in their eyes. Oh, you know, wow. I can see the disgust that like they're trying to hide, like, oh, I thought you were better than that, you know? <laughs> and oh, so, wow, yeah. and, and, uh, and I know it's just like, you need to give people a little bit of time to absorb and like by and large people have been like amazingly supportive um but it's that first moment is like it is pretty telling you know mm-hmm. and that gives me more drive to continue to do what i do to advocate for mental health awareness um yeah i mean cuz i wanted people to know that i'm the same dependable person who's you know just as worthy of love you know that that they knew before my diagnosis before they knew about my diagnosis and and that's how we we get we can get rid of stigma you know and I know that like I can't advocate for myself if I don't first admit to people what I am you know Mm -hmm. yeah totally I I think one of the most admirable things that I felt like in our initial conversations was just your your like resilience to just handle everything that you've handled so far in your life, um, especially when you're talking about your journey um, with bipolar disorder. And so if we kind of go back in time a little bit, when did you first start noticing symptoms? You know, I think we all have, you know, we we must all, even if you have the most perfect life, right? Like what is a perfect life? You know, right. must have struggles <laughs> when they're in the in your youth and those um those memories. And it's hard for me to tell always like what was a normal symptom of having, you know, some experience, some hardships in life versus mm-hmm. what was actually a mental health um you know, a symptom. And uh, I think that it, it, if I really think about it, like it must be sixth grade is when I was like really serious, had prolonged deep depression um, okay. that like led to long periods of insomnia and just like really, like I remember me really struggling. But, you know, even before then, like, because I immigrated when I was nine from Korea. And I remember even as a, like, a really young kid in Korea, um, not being able to sleep. Like I was awake when everybody else in the house was asleep. And then immigration, you know, um, I'm assuming a lot of our listeners are, have immigrant families or immigrated Mm. themselves. Like that's traumatic in itself. And I didn't speak any English. None of my family members had even traveled West before our immigration. So um, I put a lot of pressure on myself to learn English as quickly as possible and, um, and I, cause I didn't want to feel dumb, right. <laughs> you don't want to feel yeah, dumb. You don't want to yeah. feel alone. And like, you just are always out of the loop if you don't speak the language. And so, you know, I remember crying myself to sleep during, you know, during immigration, mm-hmm. but it's like, that's hard for anyone. So it's like, you know, is it my mental, is it an early sign of mental illness that like mental health condition mm-hmm. that I was, you know, had a hard time adjusting, you know, but I mean, I, it took two years for me to become fluent in English, you know, and for like to begin to assimilate. And so it's like, I think that's a fair amount of time. And so, um, but also it's like the end of that two year period is, was when sixth grade was when I was really depressed, you know? And so, Mm -hmm. so yeah, Yeah. I'd say sixth grade, short answer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, understandably it's, it's like the experiences you went through with immigration, like I think so much to process mentally and emotionally um, with such a life event like that. 
that I, I can't even imagine because I was born here. Right. But, you know, for my parents and my grandparents, mm-hmm. that, that's the story that they've told me too. Right. Um, so I guess, you know, with your experiences in seeking out help, what was that like? And do you feel like there was a difference between seeking out help before the diagnosis and after the diagnosis? Oh, yes. Um, very, very different. Oh, okay. before, the, before the diagnosis, as diagnosis, I was just a teenager. You know, I was having trouble being taken seriously, mm. especially because I'm such a good student. I was, you know, really hardworking and everything on the surface looked like it was going well. Um, you know, I worked hard not only at school, but in extracurricular activities. I did lots of extracurricular activities too much, you know, and um, <laughs> and uh, and working really hard at my parents' restaurant too. And so it was hard for me, for I mean, for people to recognize my struggles as anything more severe. Mm. Um, And my parents were too afraid to deal with it. Um, They were afraid of the stigma that they themselves um, were entrenched in, right? Um, About mental illness. And they didn't didn't believe that it was a real thing. Mm -hmm. So of course, if you don't recognize mental illness as a thing, like how how would you get help for it, you know? Um, So I wasn't diagnosed until I suffered a mental you know, break when I was studying abroad in China, it was just after 9-11, you know, it was a hard Mm -hmm. time, like a lot of adjustment, you know, and, um, and it took away, it took being away from home and being away from people who know me for me to be taken seriously, you know? And so, um, I think society really wants to believe right now that bipolar disorder is in vogue, that doctors give that label kind of willy nilly (laughs) to Mm. a lot of young people or even children um, that it's like given too easily. And it's like that it it results too many people in running too many people on medication. And, um, but that was like, certainly not the case for me Um, and not the experience I hear a lot hear from, from the support group that I'm active in, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I certainly of course understand, like you don't want to, medicate a young child before their brain is fully developed but but yeah but I mean any trained any good trained psychiatrist would rule out other forms of mental illness like unipolar depression or just anxiety before a bipolar diagnosis Mm -hmm. so in my experience um, and and it's those of many others like me um, this means that the doctor will first prescribe you prescribe you an antidepressant, even when you have experienced psychosis, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But once you, if you're bipolar and you take most SSRIs or a lot of SSRIs, which are antidepressants, it triggers mania. And this, this, so this informs my doctor, informed my doctor that I have bipolar disorder and not just depression. Um, So I just would like to, yeah, that's like one of my messages that, you know, like I, it's a real thing, one, and it's not something that just like everybody can get a get a label for, you know. And so, right. um, and seeking treatment and maintaining that treatment plan after diagnosis can still be very challenging because every time I moved or got a new job with new health new health insurance, often meant that I needed to find all new providers. And I'm sure you know, like when you're 20 something, just out of school there's mm-hmm. a lot of changes. You move like every year and you, you know, you get new jobs and yeah, it's yeah. exhausting to have to, you know, one research and refine your provide providers, find new providers and then 
retell your traumatic experiences over and oh. over to strangers. Um, and, you know, it's it's really honestly hard to find therapists and psychiatrists that you click with who like, exactly. you think, like understand you, you know, and um, I've had a psychiatrist before that had terrible bedside, ma- bedside manners where like mm-hmm. all he wanted to do was like pretty aggressively talk about my medication only and wouldn't <laughs> let me describe how I was feeling at all. And, um, and you know, and actually for me as an ambitious working person, I really limited myself to which providers I could go to because I would always try to find ones that were closest to my work so that I would miss uh, as little work as possible. I didn't want it to disrupt my life, you know? And so, right. um, and I also had a therapist once who during my first appointment kept repeating, you people <gasps> care about only respect you, you know, meaning oh Asians, right? You people, you people. And of course she's not a person of color. And so like, um, <laughs> And she kept, you know, yeah, over and over again. And I should have walked out, but like I was frozen in my seat and I, you know, I didn't. Yeah. Um, but of course I never went back to her. And so um, after that, actually, it started a period of where I tried to only see Asian American providers. Mm. <laughs> and luckily I'm in a city where that's even remotely possible. Right. I know yeah. a lot of people like that. This is luxury that's just not accessible, you know? And um, so right now I have a great Chinese American psychiatrist and mm-hmm. she, I think it just saves time. Like I don't have to explain as much about like how I grew up, you know, exactly. and, and also I perceive, you know, less judgment where it's like founded or not um, mm-hmm. about my culture and family. Like there's just more understanding right off the bat, you know, and yeah. uh, it's, it's like being able to vent to someone who knows what it's like instead of shocking someone with my experience. Like, cause that's mm-hmm. not like, I don't want to be entertaining to someone. I just want to, you know, like, yeah. and so, yeah, that's my experience. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I completely like 110% resonate. That resonates with me mm-hmm. just cause like right now I have a therapist and I have done therapy like here and there, but nothing ever really serious um, they were usually kind of remote therapists too. So it's, it was just easier, oh, right. you know, while I was traveling or right. whatever I was mm-hmm. doing. And so this year I really wanted to make a commitment to myself. Like, no, I really want to seek out a therapist that I can physically sit down mm-hmm. with and like actually have that, you know, human interaction yes. and conversation. And it was really important for me this time around to find someone who is Asian or Asian American right. too. Um, y- yeah. Cause like, our experiences are truly very different, um, you know, just at, from that background. Right. Um, and it's, it, I can't even imagine how tough it would be to have to like explain the nuances of our different <laughs> cultures and like customs and like having to explain like, no, 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 it's like, okay. Like within, within this family, you I mean, know, not that's necessarily like, the idea. okay, but like, it's, you well, know, it's just yeah. like why it's done, you know, like I, yeah. Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's really nice to be able to like, not have to explain. Right. Yeah. Just like what's conventional right. in, in our culture. Um, yeah. yeah it's that like yeah. having that like, cultural lens yeah oh yeah Mm -hmm. totally um you faced like an amazing amount at least to me just a lot of pushback you know from counselors and doctors and your own family and I guess this kind of ties back into you know you're searching for people of color and immigrant kind of mental health role models early on do you think that there's more people of color and immigrant mental health role models nowadays or do you think there's 
more room for improvement. Oh, I would I would love for more. <laughs> so I definitely <laughs> really think, hate give me yeah. more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean there are a few now and um and, I mean back when I was twenty, first diagnosed for struggling, I didn't know of anyone. Um and you know this this was like early two thousands. So the mm-hmm. internet was definitely not what it is today. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know where to look. Yeah. So I didn't know where to look. And um now many Asian American mental af- mental health advocates um, are working hard to create awareness and um, destigmatize mental illness. Uh, but I don't think there's still someone with that high profile um, mm-hmm. that as as much reach like or I, I would love for someone, you know, who's like Lady Gaga level, but who's Asian American, right. you know, <laughs> that would be amazing. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, like there are other people who are who are working really hard on it, doing great work. DJ Chuang has been uh, working with his uh, Erasing Shame podcast for a long time, mm-hmm. and um, there's also an advocate uh, from California, also named uh, Emily Wu Trong, who is very active as well and done mm-hmm. a lot of great work. But all of us deliver our messages differently, and I think our um, messages themselves even vary as well. For example, um, DJ and his collaborators, they do fantastic work and um, they are from the Christian faith community. The Christians, mm. And so they, they, you know, some of their work focuses on that. And whereas like my advocacy is more secular and uh, yeah. it is secular. And so, um, so I, I mean, there's just such a wide range of people who, you know, of course, like I don't have to say, Asian Americans, we're all different, right? Like there's a wide, <laughs> wide and, and we're going to relate to different aspects of the story. And so um, definitely looking for more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think for me, and this is a topic that I've been thinking about, especially I'm, I'm quite active on Instagram, uh-huh. um, probably spend more time on it than I really should. <laughs> but <laughs> I think one of the things I've definitely noticed um, just the way that social media is and, and the, the way the internet is, is that, um, a lot of the wellness, like Instagram accounts that I come across are mostly led by not people of color. Yeah, <laughs> um, I know. Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, yeah it would just be nice to see even on a social influencer level, right. Just, just more diversity, um, in terms of like wellness and mental health space. Right. Um, I think it's just, it's so impactful just seeing the images right. um, being attached to that kind of mission. For right. Sure. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, me personally, when I couldn't find um, a book, when I was diagnosed, I, you know, went to the library and I wanted to find an example of someone, just one person who was le- leading a normal life with mm-hmm. my diagnosis. And um, like the only book at the time that I could find was, um, was a, you know, a young Caucasian woman, but I was like really excited to find it, but I still wished that there was a person of color, um, Mm -hmm. story. And then now later, you know, fast forward almost 20 years, there's, there are a lot more books, um, but mostly are still, yeah, non, non non-people of color, uh, Mm -hmm perspectives so yeah um yeah yeah there's definitely a need which is why I'm actually writing my own story (laughs) yeah I know and we could definitely talk about that in a little bit yeah (laughs) very exciting yeah yeah but I definitely feel the same way where there's room for improvement for sure in Mm -hmm. terms of representation definitely you know there's a lot of 
statistics and articles on how generally most Asian cultures treat the topic of mental health. And it's a, it's a very complex, you know, multi-layer kind of situation. Uh, for your own personal perspective, did you feel that your culture and heritage impacted your mental health journey, whether it was positively or negatively? I think this is a really complex question. Yeah, it's it's a tough question. Mm-hmm. And this is why I prefer speaking to actually, and my target audience is Asian Americans, mm-hmm. when I explain my own struggles with my mental health and the, and the stigma, because there's a basis of understanding, right? Like we mentioned earlier, there's a better understanding that I'm speaking my own experience and not that of every other Asian person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the Asian diaspora is so vast and so diverse. My life story as a first generation immigrant could not be more different than, you know, my best friend who's a fifth generation Chinese American. Right. And um, I think, you know, my family history uh, is a lot or a family history is a lot better way to put it than culture or heritage, because that separates my story, my own story from, and and um and it makes it so I'm clearly not speaking for billions of people who identify as Asian, you know. And so, um and and like for me, like speaking about my family history, it contains trauma, right? Mm-hmm. My grandfather, my grandparents fled northern China due to um, famine, and they wanted to make a better life in Korea, only to encounter the Korean War. Mm. And uh, my parents were born just a couple years after the war ended, and the country was completely decimated. It, you know, it was definitely a period of need and of healing and of rebuilding. Um, and that kind of trauma can cost, cast a shadow that, like, that really goes down several generations. You yeah. know, the fight or flight reflex, the fear of losing everything in a moment, it, that that anxiety, it's passed down. And um, I think that's why my parents have hoarding tendencies, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they're afraid of losing everything there, you know. And so if, if you think about this family history of trauma as a baseline and as a baseline for many people, whether it's Native Americans or Blacks or whites even, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't matter the culture or the heritage. It's the trauma. It's a family history of trauma that makes the difference. Um, if fear is still ruling one's life, whether they've been able to escape um that that need to teach their children that fear to pass on that fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I just finished reading between the world and me um, by Tanahasi Coates, which is a great book. And it makes a point of like really clearly pointing out that fear can be needed for survival. You know, mm-hmm. you know, especially when you're in a environment that you don't feel you're in control, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like that kind of, I think, helps us understand that it's not necessarily like, cause what do these person of color, people of color communities have in common? You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily, like, I don't want to attribute it to culture or heritage. I think it's trauma. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a rather long answer to saying, yes, my parents view on mental health and, and, and their ability to grasp its seriousness, you know, really did affect me, mm-hmm. but they're, own mental health affected me more mm-hmm. um and it still affects me today uh because yeah it's it's a misguided survival instinct it's born out of a misguided instinct to protect us right. it's 
it's, you know, no less harmful and I'm not like making excuses, but I, I kind of refuse to blame it on culture or heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't have trauma masquerading as culture. That's incredibly harmful and it causes the cycle of abuse to continue. It, it builds on stereotypes, on racism and even self-hate. And, um, and it prevents us from being proud of our culture and heritage. And I don't want that, you know, and there's, there's a thing called progress and it's our, (laughs) our responsibility to, to like break the cycle of abuse and to like take, to, to, to make progress, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's such an incredible like viewpoint. I just, I, yeah, I'm really blown away by your response. It was not long at all. It was perfect. It was really (laughs) good. Obviously the Asian you know, community is just so varied, so, so, so varied. Um, mm-hmm. And there and there can't be a blanket kind of statement of like how we all treat mental health because it is very much personal and related to each of our own family histories. Um, exactly. Yeah, that is a really amazing statement. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah. I think it's it's kind of really beautiful to me that it's become a full circle moment for you that you've decided to become a mental health advocate and writer, kind of like becoming your own role model that you've been searching for. Um, so how did you feel when you made this jump, you know, out of the corporate life and into writing and advocacy? Angie, I felt, <laughs> I felt so free. I felt so free and I felt such a sense of relief and, you know, don't get me wrong. Like I loved my past careers and mm-hmm. I really fed off, the feeling of being productive and of, you know, of having high achievement, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the way I was conditioned and raised. Mm -hmm. And, um, and of course to have the privilege of making a good living meant that I didn't have to stress about money the way my family always did growing up, you know, and um, slowly learning to relax about money and, you know, striking that balance between trying to be as frugal as, as possible all the time, just as a, (laughs) as a default to, living a little, yeah, you know, and, and, um, it's revolutionary, <laughs> revolutionary. I think like my husband actually had to like teach me to do that. <laughs> and, um, and, but it's also guilt inducing because I know my parents will live that frugal life forever, mm-hmm. whether or not it's need based. Cause that's just the way they, they are, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, besides this, the freedom that, that money gave me, like I, the reason I left was I realized that I was putting so much pressure um, on myself, like putting so much of myself into my work that I had nothing left at the end of the day. I was not healing. I was not reflecting enough. You know, I was procrastinating everything I had to do um, that was more personal, not professional, you know, and um just I needed to feed my soul. Like I had been a, before corporate life, I'd been a nonprofit worker. I worked in international adoption and in um, women and children's advocacy issues. And so I began running so hard in this corporate race that I never really intended to join, (laughs) that I (laughs) didn't realize how much I missed the mission-driven work. Mm. And um, so I just kind of had this like epiphany moment of like, what am I doing? Like this you know, this is not worth, but for me, this is not what I had set out my life to do, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, now I'm working really hard on my writing and mm-hmm. I treat it as a normal job where I'm like in my office all day. Yeah. Um, but I also 
I'm also find myself really rejuvenated by each day because I love what I'm putting out. And um, I have so much more energy for my son, for my, you know, for my husband, my, my dog who thinks is the greatest thing in the world that I'm <laughs> home all the time now. You know, I feel just, I just feel so much healthier and happier. It's, I've, I've never been happier. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. I, even for myself, like, I feel like, well, I'm going to turn 30 this year. Uh-huh. And I feel like when I'm looking back on just my 20s, um, I'm happy with the way that I spent it. I don't think I could have spent it any differently and felt, you know, mm-hmm. happier or, you know, lesser. Uh, so I, I'm happy with the way I spent my 20s. But um, I was also kind of like a very ambitious go-getter, like, you know, gotta gotta work up the career ladder and gotta make, you know, X amount of money and have all these benefits and join, you know, big companies and big brands and have big name clients. Um, right. But last year, was it last year or a couple of years ago now, um, was the first time I felt very burnt out um, from that kind of lifestyle, that just go, go, go right. kind of mentality. Um, and so, you know, I took a year off just to kind of like reset, rethink and just reflect. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's definitely made me feel like I appreciate all the hard work that I've put into the career, but maybe it's coming now at an expense of like personal needs and personal values. Um, Yeah. And so I think it's really important to kind of find some kind of balance. Like there's never going to be a perfect picture, perfect, you know, balanced lifestyle every day. But um, yeah, Yeah. I'm also feeling the same way where maybe the corporate life isn't serving my best interest all the time. And, um, you know, I, I'm realizing that my priorities are different now where I want to spend more time with my parents, um, being able to travel th- with them while they're physically able to, right. um, you know, create more. Obviously, I'm working on this podcast, but I love the idea of maybe collaborating with other people on like other things. I have no idea. Painting or <laughs> yeah. music. Yeah. I like I have no idea, right. but I just want to explore. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, I hope that I can be um, successful enough with my writing that I can, you know, that this is more s- sustainable for a longer period of time. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, I am not making a regular paycheck anymore, right? And so, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, doing freelance writing and hoping to um, sell my book. But, you know, it's, yeah, it's it's different. And it's like, for me, the first time... Um, I still call it a luxury to like, to kind of live like a starving artist, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel the same way where like, uh, you know, I feel like my parents have given so much of their time and effort to build a very comfortable life. Like mm-hmm. we didn't start out that way. Yeah. Um, but now like I, I realize the privilege I have um, just, you know, financially with the way that my parents and I have been set up for now. Um so yeah, I also also like recognize that I'm very lucky to right. have the ability to just, you know, yeah. like explore <laughs> other options. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think kind of going back into your writing then, because you mentioned that you're working on a book. Right. And so 
yeah, your is is this book focused on like mental health advocacy or like you know what's the mission of your writing yeah. right now? So I started my memoir with a mission statement. That's the first thing I wrote, and I wanted to、mm. reach people experiencing mental health challenges, especially Asian Americans,、um, and to show them that a good and happy life is well within reach. That you can still thrive with a mental health condition, but that the first step is making a commitment to treatment and wellness.、Um, I don't want anybody. To be suffering alone because I I did that you know and、um, suicide rates I don't I don't think I have to say like is increasing at an unprecedented rate amongst teenagers we're、yeah. really failing to convince our kids that life will get better and、mm-hmm. I want them to get the message that it does get better you know that and that they、yeah. can get help、um, I I think especially those people that we don't even know are suffering I think those are Often the ones that are most at risk, and I know it can be so daunting in the beginning when you first get your diagnosis. That you know, it's I I just want want them to know that life can still work out. You know that、yeah. that it doesn't have to define you. It doesn't define your life. It's very manageable. So, I think it's just amazing that that you're dedicating yourself to to you know. Advocating for mental health and and trying to bring awareness, especially for future generations that really need to hear that、um, or read about it. And so, I guess if you could give advice to those who have a negative impression of mental health, what would you say? You know, I think one of the main things right now that I would love for our society to be aware of is that right now there seems to be no distinction between. Mental illness in remission versus mental illness without treatment. Like we are, when people think about mental illness, we're all grouped into the same group. No long, no matter if you're 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 like unmedicated, untreated, versus you're like really managing it. And that really boggles my mind. <laughs> you know, it, it, because、yeah. it, like、um, it, it seems like the term in remission seems to only be known by professionals. You know, and and.、Um, As it's like if you if you think about someone who is actively dying of terminal cancer versus someone who survived cancer in their twenties but are living a full life now, like you would never group those people together and what they're capable of, you know, and and where、mm-hmm. they are in their journeys. But yet we do that with mental illness. It makes no sense, you know. <laughs> like that's interesting, and、yeah. um, it's just. You know, I just want people to know, like, as much as cancer survivors are living amazing lives in remission, people living with mental health conditions can also reach that level of stability.、Um, I would love for people to think about mental health the same way they would think about physical health,、um, mm-hmm. without stigma and without discrimination,、um, and of course. Like no judgment as well, you know. Mental illness、right. is not a character flaw. I can't say that enough. It's not a choice, <laughs> you know. It's not someone <laughs> being dramatic and being re- irresponsible, and they can't just snap out of it.、Um, everyone's, you know, it's not a weakness. You know, I think it, there's a lot of just kind of blaming on the person who has who lives with a mental illness, and、mm-hmm. um, everyone's bodies and their brains. Are so different. We react to medications differently. We, you know, re- react to treatment differently.、Um, and I would love for our world to have more compa- compassion and understanding around that.、Um, and without shame and stigma, 
uh, people struggling would be able to access help and treatment more easily because they would not be they would be less afraid to admit that that's what they're struggling with, you know, and mm-hmm. and they would feel more supported um, and help them reach a place of in remission, which is where I've been for several years. I think it's definitely. Yeah. Misunderstanding. That's a huge thing right. nowadays. And, you know, I, yeah, especially for mental health. Um, yeah, we definitely need more compassion. Yeah. We really need more understanding. If you could give advice to those who think that they might need help, um, but aren't sure what to do next, what would you like to say? I'd say there's no shame in needing help at all in talking to a professional. Um, it, you know, it doesn't hurt to find a therapist, you know, if often the first consultation is free. So there's just no harm in trying it. And I feel like uh, if your life and your well-being, if there's something, even if there's even a remote possibility that you could end up a happier person and be more at peace, I think it's worth a try, right? Um, And and if you haven't gotten help and are in a dark place, there are national helplines that that you can use. Um, I'm active. I'm an active volunteer with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which is a nonprofit, and they have a helpline that can be, you know, that's that's available, and the staff there help you, you know, guide you to the, your next resources. Of course, if you're in a true crisis, you should call nine one one. But there's also the uh, National Suicide Prevention Helpline, which is um, called which you call. Uh, 800-273-TALK. And, uh, and there's even a text line that you could use for if you're in a crisis. And um, that's there's one with NAMI where, where you can text the letters N-A-M-I to 741-741. And then they'll, it's a 24-hour, seven days a week support through text message. So there's definitely help if you're in a bad place. Otherwise, I think the first step is, you know, realizing you're not alone and starting to talk about your problems. Cause I, now that I've come out, so many people have come out of the woodwork from my life. And it turned out that my best friend in high school, she was, she was struggling with severe anxiety and panic attacks and unable to sleep the same time I was. Oh my and gosh. we were on the phone for hours every day. We were teenage girls, right? <laughs> like, yeah. And yet we didn't know this about each other. Wow. And, and you know, there's another friend from my MBA program who, when my article on HuffPost came out, wrote me and said, she, swells, she lives with bipolar disorder as well. And there's like so many examples of this that it cool. gives me chills that of like, oh my God, how much could we have been there for each other and supported right. each other had we been not ashamed to talk about our struggles? You know, mm-hmm. um, how much we would have been better for it if we were able to help each other. So yeah. you are not alone if you're struggling, you know, talk about it. Even if you're not ready for a therapist, like talk about it with a friend, somebody you trust, you know, and um, and yeah therapy. Great. I can't say enough. (laughs) (laughs) Same same for me. I, yeah. uh, Therapy has been amazing um, since I started like taking it a little more seriously this year and I can't highly recommend it enough. So yes, it's, yeah, you are definitely not alone to anyone out there who feels like that they are. Yes. Um, Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, 
I think this is kind of the end of our episode, unfortunately. But I wanted to thank you so much, Michelle, for, you know, taking the time, sharing your story, your thoughts, everything. Thank you, Angie. I love your podcast. Thanks for all your great work. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) This episode's music was by Paulina Vo. You can check her out at soundcloud.com slash Paulina Vo. 